ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, listeners. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, a podcast producer here at Foreign Policy. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, we're featuring Course Correction, a Doha Debates podcast produced by FP Studios. This season, all six episodes are devoted to the refugee crisis. Each episode focuses on a different part of being a refugee, hearing directly from refugees themselves. The episode you're about to hear, the premiere episode of this third season, starts at the beginning, the moment someone becomes displaced. But first, Course Correction host Nelofar Hadayat sat down with me to discuss this first episode and the series' new format. Here's that conversation. So now, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for talking to us. I have to say, you know, I was listening to this new season of Course Correction, and it's really powerful. It's about refugees, and this is a topic that is very close to your heart. You know, you're a refugee yourself. Your family fled when you were seven. And I know that you've done a lot of reflection, a lot of journalism, about this. But I was curious for you what it was like doing a full season on this topic. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's a combination of professional kind of curiosity and journalism that I've been doing for 13 years. But also, it's kind of incredibly personal, as you say, my journey to the UK, where I live, where I'm talking to you from, from London, is a, is a complex one that involves people, traffickers, uh, refugees, money, you know, destitution, being moved from here to there, becoming a refugee. It's, it's a long, long embattled story. And I think for journalists like me who do immersive filmmaking, who become and embed with the stories that they're telling, it is definitely um, sort of one of the frontiers of this type of work. It is, it's hard. It's emotionally tough. Yeah. I mean, so tell me about that. Like, what's it like for you doing these interviews? It's like looking into a mirror that's been distorted and you recognize the reflection instinctively, but you can't see anything beyond that. Everything is warped and myopic. 
for the people who are coming from Afghanistan today, they didn't have to endure the, the street fighting, the battles on every street corner in Kabul in the 80s, like my mom and many, many, many other women and men endured. But they've had their own battles, a psychological war, a guerrilla war fought on their land. They have to deal with the same instinctual, very base emotions and feelings that I did. And I'll tell you this, it's bringing up so much of the trauma that I suffered as a refugee and, you know, being very real about things, practicing good mental health. I, I have to get therapy for it. I have to be able to process it. It's like coming face to face with the hardest question of your life. And then trying to connect with other people about that and then turn it into a program, right? Because I want people to listen. I want people to feel these stories that we uncovered. I think it's interesting that you said the word distorted, like you're looking into a mirror, but it's distorted. What exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean just because their stories are similar, but obviously they're their own? Or do you mean distorted in some other kind of way? I mean distorted in multiple ways but in the context of what we're talking about an image flashed on my screen um, of a young girl sitting on the floor she looked like me when I was seven and behind her were her mothers crying her mother and her aunt and whoever crying because they did not know what the future was going to bring with the new Taliban with the western forces leaving so immediately with the international intervention ceasing within moments in Afghanistan and I saw myself and I saw myself and this girl looked as scared as I must have all those years ago. Distorted because it's the same story and yet different. And it feels like with every wave of refugees we get, we're familiar with the story, but we have lost our connection to it. And I guess that's why it feels distorted because we all understand the pain of being displaced but we don't connect with it. And that's what I think we're trying to remedy on course correction. Yeah. And I have to say, well, each episode focuses on a different step of the refugee journey. And the first episode focuses on the moment that you become a refugee, you become displaced, and you follow one person's story in particular that's really powerful without giving too many spoilers away. Nell, could you talk a little bit about that person? The first person that you hear in this, in this episode wasn't one of the first person I spoke to, but his story lives in my mind daily. A Rohingya Muslim persecuted because of his religion. And one of the, the most shocking things about the story was, wasn't just the fact that this is a country being torn apart by identity, but when a group of people are forced to leave because of the violence that they've been met with, it's the lack of support and help the international community shows. So yet again, I saw for myself a repetition of my story in the stories that we covered and in the people that the UNHCR, our partners in making this series, working with us, uh, presented us was folks who for no reason are displaced, no reason of their own, by their own hand, displaced. Laura, they're thought of as bad people. Well, why did you leave? Couldn't you have stayed? When are you going to go back? So it's been a really challenging look, not only at what the refugee status is like globally and understanding the mechanisms, the systems, you know, how does the whole 
think churn. But the harder question is, look, talking to Nelifer, the British citizen, and understanding that that rejection is in me. So I, I kind of feel as a British Afghan person, like I'm at war with myself. <laughs> like one side of me understands so much of why these people are coming to our shores. And yet the other side kind of has almost like a blasé attitude. So I think that's one of the most solemn, most difficult things to, to write about or to express as a journalist. And we started from the go, from episode one. I have to say, I mean, it was sort of emotional for me hearing you talk about feeling like a bad person. Yeah, a burden, feeling other. I have vivid memories of the stumbling blocks that I faced, you know, language. How can you explain to this person you're hungry when they don't understand you and you don't understand them? When I left Afghanistan, I left the one nation that I was born on. Now, wherever I go in this earth, and I am privileged as heck, Laura, don't get me wrong, I am, I am fine. But that sense of loss is not something that I cope with well. And other folks that you're going to hear during the course of the podcast, Rodan, Al-Ghalili, so many other refugees who take the opposite opinion. They're like refugees who try harder to fit in <laughs> and so on. I have a different view. So it's been a long journey making this show. It's been well over half a year planning and you know working with everyone. And I think it's some of the most important, striking work I've ever done. And I hope people who listen think so too. That was Nella Farha Diet. And now, here's the first episode of the third season of Course Correction. On February 24th, the first Russian bombs landed inside the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Uh, breaking news this morning, it's war. President Putin announces the start of a military operation. While the world watched in shock and horror, those at the UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, warned of the cost of conflict, including a mass movement of people. Here's the statement put out on the day by the head of the UNHCR, High Commissioner Filippo Grandi. We are gravely concerned about the fast deteriorating situation and ongoing military action in Ukraine. The humanitarian consequences on civilian populations will be devastating. There are no winners in war, but countless lives will be torn apart. In addition to expressing his concerns, High Commissioner Grandi detailed the actions his agency would be taking. UNHCR is working with the authorities, the United Nations and other partners in Ukraine and is ready to provide humanitarian assistance wherever necessary and possible. We stand ready to support efforts by all to respond to any situation of forced displacement. In the first two weeks of the invasion, more than two million Ukrainians fled across the borders as Russian forces closed in on population centres. We sent a producer to capture some of those voices on the Ukraine-Polish border. I, I was travelling during four days, four days from Kharkiv to Lviv, using different trains, cars, even by foot, just to get safe. We have left just where the first bombs uh, 
there, uh, I think it was six o'clock in the morning. Where's your husband? He stayed in Kiev uh, to protect the city. Ukraine is totally damaged now by bombs, by different kind of weapons. I even didn't know that that kind of weapons still exist on the earth. So all this time the kids were sleeping in the car and the last two days and one night we spent here in this queue just to cross the border. The number of refugees forced across the border continues to grow. Ukraine is a country of 44 million people and it's been estimated by the European Union that up to 4 million of them will flee their country because of this conflict. Another 7 million are predicted to become internally displaced. Now, while these figures are staggering, they pale in comparison to the total number of displaced people globally. The UN estimates that there are 84 million forcibly displaced people around the world. 27 million of those are considered refugees. These are the highest they've ever been. And while the cause of displacement varies from country to country, region to region, those who have fled their homeland all have one thing in common. None of them chose this path. Refugees are made, not born. Nobody wants to be a refugee. This is Salima Rahman, an Afghan doctor now living in Pakistan. Nobody can understand the significance of peace until they walk in the shoes of a refugee. So that's what we're going to try to do. Try to put you in the shoes of displaced people. Well, as much as we can in a podcast. And we're not going to do that just on today's episode, but for our entire third season. From Doha Debates, this is Course Correction. I'm Nelifah Hidayat. For the past two seasons of the podcast, we've challenged ourselves to find ways to change the world. In the first season, I did personal challenges to see how individuals can have a real impact. In season two, we focused on having challenging conversations to figure out how to bridge the gaps that divide us. You should go back and listen to those. For this season, we're focusing on the refugee story. Why just this one topic? Well... I believe displacement of people is arguably the biggest humanitarian and geopolitical issue of our time. And it's something we focused on a lot at Doha Debates, who produced this programme. Check out the debate from March 2019 on YouTube on the global refugee crisis to see what I mean. This season of Course Correction is going to look at all the aspects of the refugee experience and follow refugees along their arduous journey from the moment they become displaced to the challenges they face along the way. And finally, we'll talk about resettlement or returning back home. It's a process that can sometimes last years. So many refugee situations, we've seen um, people spend decades often being a refugee because peace is not on the horizon and they're unable to return back. That's Shabia Mantu. She's a spokesperson for UNHCR based in Geneva. This season, you're going to be hearing a lot from UNHCR the United Nations Refugee Agency, since we've teamed up with them as partners. They've reached into their vast network to connect us to experts who can give context to the two groups of people we'll be focusing on this series, refugees and internally displaced persons. When we talk about refugees, they're people who are fleeing armed conflict, violence, uh, persecution and crossing international borders in search of safety and protection. Um, And these people are recognised under international law um, and they have a right to what we call protection um, for 
internally displaced people, these are people who also may have the same reasons uh, for being forced uh, to flee their homes. So they may be fleeing uh, conflict, persecution, human rights violations, um, but they remain within their country. The word migrant is sometimes used interchangeably with refugee, but there are key differences. Migrants are people who choose to move, not because of a direct threat of persecution or death, but to seek a better life for themselves and their families, for work, education and other reasons. While refugees cannot safely return home, migrants don't face this obstacle. While stories of migrants are important, care for them falls outside of the UNHCR's mandate. In addition to hearing from UNHCR and other experts, we'll also hear from some of the agency's goodwill ambassadors, like actors Mahira Khan and Kate Blanchett. You can often sort of forget that people who don't look like you or that live in a different culture or speak a different language are somehow different organisms, but they're not. We're all flesh and blood with a lot to offer. And that has been my experience time and time again with the refugees I've met. Most importantly... Throughout the series, I'll be in conversation with refugees themselves. We'll hear from those who are currently displaced, as well as those who have resettled and are now helping others in need. Before my birth, my mother faced severe complications and my father did not expect that I would survive. And he vowed to himself that if uh, the baby will survive, he will ensure to make the baby a doctor regardless of the gender because at that time my father realized the importance of uh, having a doctor in our community. I understand very deeply what Salima's talking about. I spent the first seven years of my life as a refugee. My mother made the decision, if it can be called a decision, to leave my birthland of Afghanistan for the safety of the unknown future as a refugee, which she believed would be a safer path than staying in the war-torn country of Afghanistan. She was right. Now, as a professional journalist, I've spent over a decade documenting my and other refugees' stories. So let's dive right in for part one of our programme. We're going to take a closer look at the moment of displacement and its immediate aftermath. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and Seek the truth with an open mind. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I would like to be a refugee. Um, that's what I want to, to be with my life. And so you have to think of these people as being really out of other options. This is Errol Yabake. I am at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where I am a senior fellow with the International Security Program, and I run a project on state fragility and human mobility issues. Once a person decides to leave home, each subsequent decision takes on massive consequences. So how do they survive? They generally sell off goods especially the ones who didn't have to leave right away due to some sort of immediate crisis or rapid onset event. 
they will sell their their assets, they will take loans from family and friends, and a lot of times they will move irregularly. One of the biggest challenges for people in situations like this is that they're not easy pathways to go. Writer Rodan Al-Ghalidi told me that his plan to flee Iraq was less about what he wanted to do and more about what he didn't want to do. My plan was not to go to the army of Saddam Hussein. And I didn't have a plan. Because if you don't have country, if you don't have ID card, if you don't have passport, if you don't have money, how you will have the plan? My plan was just to eat in the day. Because sometimes two days you don't have eating or drinking. This is something I can relate to as well. When I sat down and asked my parents about why they finally left Afghanistan, they both said the same thing. It wasn't that they were looking forward to settling in a foreign country. It was that the country that they thrived in and were rich and healthy in, it was gone. What was left in its place was the worst of humanity, something to run away from. That's when we decided to leave our home in Afghanistan. But even if you have a plan once you leave, there are inevitably countless pitfalls and obstacles that must be surmounted. Some you can account for, and then there are ones you have no way to anticipate. I can't just get on a plane and go somewhere else. Again, this is Errol Yabake. I have to apply for a visa. I have to then probably get that visa request denied. And so then I have to explore all sorts of irregular routes, which themselves come with lots of danger. You know, you're talking about smugglers and traffickers and, and you know, violence along the way, uh, particularly against women and children. And so I, these, this is why these decisions are not easy decisions, because people that are forced into making them a lot of times know the peril. They don't know the specifics, but there are people that went before them. It's one thing to conceptualize how hard it is. It's another thing to hear directly from refugees about their experience. Listen to Mohammed Anwar. I am from Burma. I'm a Rohingya. Burma, now known as Myanmar, is a country in Southeast Asia with a population of about 55 million people, the majority of whom are Buddhists. Rohingyas are Muslim and until the latest exodus of Rohingyas in 2017, about a million of them lived in Rakhine State which is in the western part of the country bordering Bangladesh. But despite having lived in Myanmar for generations, the Rohingya are not considered citizens. Our government saying we are like a Bangladesh people and we are not Bangladesh people. They're trying to kick out us, but we are, our grandparents was lived there, Burma. Without citizenship, the Rohingyas have been unable to access basic government services and have been vulnerable to exploitation and violence. In 2017, violence against the Rohingyas caused hundreds of thousands of them to flee, mostly into neighbouring Bangladesh. Many in Myanmar simply don't want them there, so their homes are burned, fleeing gunfire with their lives and families on their backs. We had to walk a long way. We had to cross hills, marshes and paddy fields to make the journey to the Bangladesh border. Mohammed says that even as a young boy, he witnessed violence constantly being committed against his people. And as he got older, he saw his friends start to disappear. If you are a boy, 
the government take you to the jail and just take you disappear they not tell you your parents anything they not say nothing and they take you then one day in 2012 when he was 12 muhammad was at home when he had cries throughout his village women was screaming in government here if you are boy please leave the house and we have a lot of farmer there's rice grass there and hide there while hiding under the cover of paddy fields he found a friend a slightly older boy who encouraged muhammad to head out with him to the port their plan was to find a boat that would take them to safety i just uh, followed my friend and we work two days and two night and then we came to the bangladesh ocean then there was a fisherman we asked them can you help me to cross to the bangladesh he said if you pay me using the little money he had in his pocket his friend paid the fisherman for a trip across to bangladesh but their stay in bangladesh only lasted a night or two at the time there were already many refugees and muhammad and his friend were not sure how welcome they'd be this is not my country our country bangladesh also like they might kick us out unless see we can find better country then a lot of people like rohingya people joined together and they bought a small fishing boat and we take that boat and we tend to find a country muhammad says there were about 120 rohingya crammed into one small fishing boat they left bangladesh not knowing where the vessel would take them the goal was to just get away from myanmar and to find a country any country that would receive them we don't know where we're going we don't have destination After 6 days the vessel finally made it to the territorial waters of Thailand where they encountered the Thai navy. Then Thailand navy was uh, telling us uh, where are you guys from what are you doing here? We, we told them like uh, we are from Burma Rohingya but we don't have any place to stay we trying to find a place to stay. Then Thailand navy was saying okay we are going to help you be patient. Muhammad and the other Rohingya were grateful. Using a rope, they attached their boat to the ship from the Thai navy. And they tied our boat to their ship with a rope and that rode us like two days and one night and it's like a deep ocean they took us and they cut the rope. We don't have oil, we don't have food and nothing. Then we were crying and we were asking, "Why do you guys leave us like we don't have oil?" and we were crying. but uh, they left as there so there they were 120 rohingya with no fuel food or water having been towed out to sea with no means of communicating with other boats things began to get bleak some of the rohingya attempted to forge makeshift sails from the blankets on the boat some people took some blanket and we put sail on our boat then whenever wind come sail will take us wherever wind go their fate would be left to the winds and the currents days turned to weeks i was like crying and fall asleep wake up and crying whenever i fall asleep and is a uh, dream come to like drinking water eating food whenever i open my eyes i am still on the ocean it's make me cry why i left what is happening that it was very difficult for me Muhammad's faith began waning already one person had died and Muhammad was very weak and began losing hope that he'd ever make it back to shore 
we didn't have any food uh, like we are without drink over that food like 25 days we just drinking salt water i am starving i was dreaming or hoping to find a country that's all finally after 25 days hope came in the form of a sri lankan fishing vessel the fishermen on board gave the abandoned rohingya some food and radioed the sri lankan navy the sri lankan navy came pointing gun at us we raised our hand but we can't move our hand either and we tell them we are rohingya people and we are suffering from 25 days in the ocean we don't have food we don't have water we are trying to find a place to live then they say we will help you mohammed and the others were absolutely overjoyed once in sri lanka they were taken to a hospital they were given food clothes and beds to rest in after that they were transferred to camps where they were encouraged to go back to myanmar we are telling them Sri Lankan government if you want to send us Myanmar why you pick up the ocean you can put us back on the ocean again this apparently didn't sit well with the Sri Lankan government because afterwards Muhammad and the other Rohingya were moved to a jail this is not uncommon for refugees seeking help or asylum after three months we are thinking why we are at the jail we didn't do nothing they help us save our life and why they put us at the jail and we decide to not to eat food one day two days the hunger strike lasted two days after which they came before an official who asked them what they wanted their answer was simple we say we don't want our embassy we don't want to go back our country we want to stay or here or any other country we can practice our religion or we can live freely and get education and then finally a reprieve UNHCR helped Muhammad and the others get out of prison. Muhammad was sent to a group home in Sri Lanka along with other minors from his group. There he was well fed and began receiving schooling. Still he was not free to move around. He didn't have an ID and so anytime he left the house to buy clothes or to contact his family, he needed a local to accompany him. Muhammad's situation was better, but still he yearned to have full rights i just wanted like a freedom like i can go outside and i can go to a school that's what i, I want is sri lanka or any other country i i mean i just need a, like a free and peaceful place i can stay after nearly 2 years spent like this mohammed finally got his chance one day uh, one of uh, my officer who was taking care of us he was telling me Mohammed you have interview for tomorrow to go to the United States I didn't believe that he was saying no I'm serious you are going After the interview and through Catholic charities Mohammed was placed with a family in Dallas Things moved quickly from there and pretty soon he was on his first plane ride and not before long he was meeting his new foster family but it wasn't all hugs at first he was big and he said welcome to my house this is your house but i thought he is going to beat us i was scared because uh, back to my country our government always like uh, beat us like that's scary still in my heart then one of our rohingya brother who was translator us he is your foster dad he will help you whatever you need that was 7 years ago 
Since then, Mohammed has graduated high school and has received permanent residence status in the US. He's now studying to become a nurse. He says it's impossible to directly repay all those who helped him on his journey, so this is the next best thing. That's why I decided to be a nurse. I can help some people in future who need it. Mohammed's story is inspiring, right? But it also illustrates how there are limits to what humanitarian organisations like UNHCR can do when refugees are fleeing violence. The aid that they give addresses the effect, not the cause, of displacement. I'm dedicating my life to speak out. This is not acceptable. This is avoidable. Killing will never put an end. There is an alternative way. This is Izzeldin Abu El Aish. He's a Canadian-Palestinian doctor specialising in women's health. And like me, he's a former refugee. His career is a roadmap of how to help refugees in need. He believes strongly that part of the solution has to be global condemnation of wars and violence. It's time for the international community to work together to prevent conflicts and violence because we all are potential victims of violence and conflicts. And violence and conflicts, they cross barriers, you know, with the refugees. It's a global challenge to the world. In our next episode, we'll hear more from Dr. Abu El Aish, who'll talk about his push to end violence. We'll also address some of the unique challenges women face when they become displaced. Women, they pay the major price. They face the major challenges and they bear the heavy burden of conflict. They have to keep the family moving. And what do they have? It's a challenging. I can't describe the impact of war and conflict on women. Before we wrap up today's episode, we want to issue a challenge to you, listeners. As I was mentioning in the beginning, challenging ourselves to change the world for the better is a core value of what we do at Doha Debates. We believe dialogue and listening to a broader spectrum of ideas is fundamental to finding solutions to issues and to make real breakthroughs. That's why we'd love to hear from you on our social channels on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Doha Debates. Each week during the course of the series, we're going to have a new challenge as it relates to the episode of the week. We'll start off reflecting back on Muhammad's story as well as the millions of others who have been forced to flee their homes. The challenge is to put yourself in the shoes of a refugee. Tell us about a time when you were in a difficult circumstance and needed help from a stranger. What was it like when you were in need? How did you feel in repaying the kindness of the stranger? And if you are a refugee going through this right now, please share your story with us. That was Course Correction. Many thanks to Nelfar Hidayat, the FP podcast team, and Dohan Debates. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. And I'm your new host, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thanks for listening. Till next week. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. 
Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts.